Mahre Mezensov has been married for almost five years, but she hasn't seen her husband for most of that time. They're both Uyghurs, part of an ethnic minority in China that have been victims of horrific crimes, according to the United Nations. Mahre is an Australian citizen, and her husband is a Chinese national with permanent residency in Australia. And yet... It was on the 26th of September, 2020, that my husband was detained again for what we didn't know at the time would be the last time. Mahre's husband is one of an estimated one million people who have been detained, they say, just for being Uyghur. Several countries accuse China of carrying out a genocide. In a few days, a people's tribunal in the United Kingdom will meet and decide if that's true. You will be able to see all the evidence, view it all because it will be videoed, understand all the discussion that led to the conclusion. Here is the conclusion that nobody else is bringing you. Use it. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The Uyghur community in China is 12 million strong. Most live in the northwestern state of Xinjiang. But the UN says one million of them are in what China calls re-education camps. There's growing evidence of human rights violations inside these camps, including torture. International researchers say Uyghur detention has evolved into Uyghur forced labor. Women in China's so-called re-education camps have been systematically raped and tortured. China denies these accusations. Here's an official at the Chinese embassy in London. There's no so-called genocide or forced labor or mass sterilization or other things. We call it the lies of the century. The accusation against us in Xinjiang is totally groundless and not based on facts. Heavy surveillance in the state Xinjiang makes it hard to ever know what's actually happening with the Uyghurs who live there. It's difficult to get information in or out, and that's especially tough on people who have loved ones there, like Mehre. I am 27 years old. My husband's name is Mirza Tayir, and he is 30 years old. I'm an Uyghur who was born and raised in Melbourne, Australia. So we are here to talk about a love story of sorts. So let's go back to where the story first began, 2016, when you met your husband. Can you tell me how that happened? So my husband and I met online. Our mums actually introduced us. And then um, pretty much from the moment that I first spoke with him, we just had this connection. And then one month in, my husband asked me to marry him. Wow. So it was all like really, really quick. Um, but I guess like once you know, you just know. And I was just so sure. I knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with him. So when he asked me to marry him, I said yes. I, I went to Urumqi, which is the capital city of Xinjiang, which is his hometown. And that's where we first met in person. Mahre says it was love at first sight when she stepped out of the airport and saw Mirzat waiting for her. Their wedding was just days later. My husband is the eldest son. So there was like this big kind of expectation that he would have to have this really big wedding. 
So um, I think we had like almost 500 guests or something like that. Wow. Um, <laughs> that is quite big. Um, yeah, it felt like I was like a guest at my <laughs> own wedding. <laughs> Pretty much everyone there was all like my husband's friends and family. First, we had the religious ceremony. About a week later, then we had the actual wedding in like this big restaurant. And there was lots of cultural dancing, Uyghur music. It was just, I guess, a chance for like everyone to come and to meet me. And it was really lovely. Mahre and her husband Mirzat got married in August 2016. And by September, they'd applied for his Australian visa. They'd planned to move to Melbourne together and start their life there. But in early 2017, less than a year after their wedding, that plan was derailed. On April 1st, 2017, that was when we received the good news that his Australian visa was granted. And it was right around this time that then we started to hear rumours going around the neighbourhood that people were disappearing in the middle of the night and they were being taken somewhere and that their families were losing contact with them and no one really knew what was happening and why they were being targeted. But what we heard was that mostly at first they were targeting younger men around my husband's age. At this point, Mirzat was 26 years old. And obviously we were worried, but then at the same time, we didn't understand just the extent of how bad it really was. But in saying that, we did book our tickets as soon as possible. So we booked our tickets for the 12th of April and it was on the night of the 10th of April that police officials came and took my husband. Can you describe what you remember about the moment the police showed up? I was terrified. I was literally shaking. But then at the same time, the police were just like, we just have a few questions to ask and then we'll get out of your hair. So we were just being like, okay, maybe it is just that. But as soon as they came in, the first thing they asked was, had my husband traveled overseas? And prior to us getting married, my husband studied and worked in Turkey for about a year. So he said, yes, I've been to Turkey. And they were just like, give us your passport. They confiscated it there on the spot. And then they were just like, you have to come back to the station with us. And then my heart sank. That's when I knew that, okay, they completely just lied to us. This isn't just going to be like a couple of questions and they're not just going to let him go. At that point, my husband, he realized as well. He was like, please, whatever you have to ask, could you just ask it now? And I will answer all your questions. I beg you, please just ask me now. And at that point, like we were all crying and, and, and shaking and we were just um, begging them to just ask the questions here and then let him go. But they just wouldn't allow it. The police took Mirzat to the station and Mahre and the family followed in their own car. But they couldn't do anything. He was questioned there for three days and then transferred to a detention center. They told us clearly that it was because he had been to Turkey. That's why he was detained. But they never actually said, like, he's been arrested or anything like that. They just said, oh, it's just a few day questioning sort of thing. And then we're going to let him go. So I'm wondering what that must be like as someone who is in a somewhat foreign city. You're with your new family, but not people that you've known for a very long time. And you are having to make sense of something that doesn't really make sense in a language that's not your own. What were you feeling? 
I just remember just feeling so scared when they'd be talking. I'd just be trying to understand from their body language, were they speaking in a nice manner or were they shouting at us? And I just remember feeling so helpless that really I, I couldn't do anything or I couldn't interfere on behalf of my husband. That whole experience was just literally one of the worst experiences in my life. And especially not being able to understand like why this was happening. My husband was a law-abiding citizen. He hadn't committed any kind of crimes. He had no criminal record. So then for these um, two policemen to come into our home and then just arrest him was just so bizarre and it was just really scary. Mirzat was in and out of detention often after that point. Cumulatively, he spent three out of the past four years away from his family. And even when he was out in brief stints, he never got his passport back and was unable to leave China. I asked Mahre what Mirzat has told her about his time in detention. To be honest, he didn't really tell me so much about what he went through just because he was still having to like go through the whole trauma of it and like accept what had happened. Fortunately, my husband, the place where he was being held, he said that he wasn't involved in any kind of forced labor or anything like that. He said mainly they were constantly taught about the Communist Party. They were forced to memorize propaganda like speeches. You'd have to say, oh, like, I'm so grateful for what the Communist Party um, has done for our country. And every day he said that we were forced to confess our crimes and ask for pardoning. So because he had traveled overseas, he would have to say stuff like, I apologize for going overseas. I should have never done that. I should have realized that China was a great country and I should have um, studied and worked here. And I realize my mistake now and I will not commit that same kind of crime again. That one is particularly jarring, knowing that his wife, lives outside of China. Yeah. And he would like to be reunited with his wife and you would like to be reunited with him. Yeah. There have been lots of reports similar to this coming out of the Uyghur camps. Reports from people who've been in them suggest a program of brainwashing, study of China's anti-extremism legislation and abuse and violence. Mahre says Mirzat and the other detainees in his cell were also put through what she calls psychological torture. Pretty much every day, they were reminded that they were never going to leave the four walls and that they were never going to be reunited with their families. And any time any of the detainees didn't listen to what they were being told, he said that they were denied food and water for that day. So if one of them misbehaved, then all of them had to suffer the consequences. In terms of physical torture, because that was something that I was really worried about. He did mention this one time when he accidentally spoke Uyghur to one of the policemen. So obviously when you're in there, you're not allowed to speak the native tongue. So everyone is expected to speak Mandarin, whether you know it or not. So my husband said he accidentally replied back in our native tongue to one of the guards. And he said that day that he was handcuffed and he was strung up on the door and he was left there. Oh, wow. For... Pretty much the whole day, he was denied food, water, anything like that. So, like, hearing that, I was heartbroken. I was I was so scared. And I was like, if they've 
if they've done this to him, maybe they've done other stuff that he's not telling me and he's probably not telling me because he's like, we've already had to suffer through this for the last two years. I don't want to put you through any more suffering. I'm out now. I just want to focus on moving forward. I want to focus on our future. So then, yeah, I always had it in the back of my mind that he probably went through other things that were similar to that and he's just not telling me. After the most recent arrest in September, Mirzad was taken to a jail further from home. Then, Mehre started to hear that he was being charged with separatism. In their mind, they concocted this kind of story that my husband's whole reason for traveling to Turkey was that he was like involved in these political activities to try and bring down the Chinese government and to try and establish an independent country separate from China. What is your husband's response to that? He was like, I don't know how they were able to make this story up because obviously I haven't done anything like that. There is a large Uyghur community in Turkey and most of them are refugees. My husband was always careful to not get too involved in the community over there because he knew that there were some people who had been blacklisted by China. And like I said, he was never involved in any kind of political activities. So like when he heard this, he was like, this obviously isn't a joke to them. They're so sure that I've done this thing, even though at this point there was absolutely um, no kind of evidence at all. Then... On April 1st, 2021, Mehre says the Chinese Communist Party convicted her husband, Mirzad Tahir, of separatism and sentenced him to 25 years in prison. They did hold a trial, obviously. It was a sham trial. And after the trial, I actually reached out to the high courts and they denied that any such trial took place and they denied that a person such as my husband even existed. And that was just bizarre. And I called a couple of places. And then as soon as they heard the questions that I was asking, most of them just hung up and then they blocked my number for me to be able to call them again. What avenues are you pursuing to try to get him released? Even though my husband, his visa was cancelled and everything, when I came back to Melbourne last year, I was able to revoke the cancellation of his visa I was even able to get him his permanent residency. So as of July 2020 last year, my husband is an Australian permanent resident. So I'm really trying my best to appeal to the government here. I'm also working with Amnesty International Australia. I've also got contacts in Human Rights Watch that are also helping me with my husband's case. Obviously, I know that this is not going to be like a quick fix or anything like that. But at this point, I'm just open to trying anything and everything that I can possibly do to make even the slightest difference to my husband's case. Our countries, they need to take action. They need to do something about it and they can't keep letting this happen. The upcoming People's Tribunal in the United Kingdom is supposed to be a step in that direction. To learn more, we talked with Sir Geoffrey Nice, the chairman of the tribunal. It is usually the case that the People's Tribunals come into being because there are no formal channels to deal with the issue. If you look back at the big historic tribunals, 
the Russell Tribunal, formed 1966 into the Vietnam War, was investigating American criminality. No one was ever going to take on the United States. And that tribunal, the first of these tribunals in time, is the only evidence-based record of American criminality in the Vietnam War. Sir Jeffrey says the Russell Tribunal shows how people's tribunals can hold countries accountable for their past wrongs. And in the case of the Uyghurs, it's the only place to do so. The only places that might deal with this are the International Court of Justice, which is the world's highest court, or to the International Criminal Court. So far as the International Court of Justice is concerned, It's technically possible to get China before that court for some things, but not for genocide, because under the Genocide Convention, it has what's called a reservation. The reservation says China will not be subject to the jurisdiction of of the court. End of story. The International Criminal Court is a court basically for determining issues in the states of ratifying parties. China has not ratified the court. So there is no court to which China can be taken. That's the reason that something like this tribunal serves a purpose. Sir Jeffrey says people's tribunals are largely symbolic. They can provide relief for survivors, but can't sentence countries to pay any consequences. In the case of genocide, though, a guilty verdict could be monumental. The Genocide Convention has in Article 1 a requirement that a country knowing of or believing in genocide being committed elsewhere must act to do something about it. If a decision is made and shown to be reliable, then that country that has signed up to the convention has to act. Sir Jeffrey mentioned the genocide in Bosnia as an example. The Srebrenica genocide stands as one of the worst episodes of ethnic cleansing in Europe after the Second World War. Over five days, 8,000 unarmed Bosnian Muslim men and boys were massacred by the Bosnian Serb military forces, while thousands of women were raped. He says there was evidence ethnic cleansing began as early as 1992, but there was no decisive international intervention until years later. He says having people's tribunals earlier on can prevent that kind of inaction. But even if the facts are laid bare, what can the international community do? There is always a great deal they can do, starting off with the sort of softish option of sanctions, always having to balance whether sanctions will impose additional suffering on the innocent. They can, of course, as we've seen recently in respect of Belarus, do something like ban travel, ban overflying. They can discourage or, I dare say, block trade. But these things very rarely happen. And one of the sad things for us all to recognize is that the public is fickle. Sir Jeffrey says he's worried that the universal commitment to human rights that diplomats and presidents talk about is very fragile. But he's still hopeful that the tribunal could bring change. The international legal order is very easy to criticize. And by all means, make the criticisms. They need to be made. 
trials are too long, judges aren't good enough, whatever else it might be. But always end by saying, but this is a system that we must maintain, and we must make sure it gets better, because it is the only system we've got. Mahrid, final question. Your parents were born in Xinjiang, immigrated to Australia. What does being Uyghur mean to you? And what do you want the world to know about what being Uyghur means right now? I think to me, what it means like right now is to speak out and, and to be a voice for my husband and for people like my husband because obviously they've been silenced, they don't have a voice, they don't have anyone to speak out on behalf of them. So um, I am so lucky, I'm so privileged to have been born and raised here because I keep thinking if my parents hadn't made that move, you know, 35 years ago to Australia, we probably would have been caught up in, in the same situation. Like, my dad probably would have been in a camp as well. Like, I, I probably could have been in one too. So um, I feel like, you know, we need to um, speak out about it. We need to spread awareness. And as, as an Uyghur living in the diaspora, we need to speak out for our people and let the world know what is going on. And that's The Take. The entire People's Tribunal will be streamed live starting on June 4th. We'll post the link on Twitter. We're at AJ The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilbey with me, Malika Bilal, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, Nagin Oliai, and Dina Kisbe. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Almilek is our engagement producer. Tom Fenton is the Take story editor, and Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. Special thanks to Sophie Richardson from the Human Rights Watch for her help with research for this story. We'll be back.